So the last area of right views that I would like to speak about tonight is the right view and understanding of the wisdom of liberation. I know it's early in the retreat, but it's good that you hear it already. Because this is the practice. I'm talking about the right views, the right way of understanding, and the right thoughts that support acquiring right views. So, the wisdom of liberation. When we're willing to observe moment-to-moment mind-body process and gather the data as it is experienced, that knowledge, that data will mature into knowledge. And that knowledge will lead to an understanding of the way things are or the way things have come to be. But it takes more than one glance, of course. It takes some ongoing continuity. It takes seeing things over and over again before we really begin to kind of remove our bias, our beliefs, our assumptions, and see things as they are and understand them from the place of not suffering. Now suffering, the suffering of the torments that I mentioned the other night, arise due to causes and conditions. And one of the causes, or one of the conditions for the arising of the torments, is wrong views. And I mentioned the other night how we have these dysfunctional strategies of anger, fear, demand, entitlement, victimization, all kinds of, well, dysfunctional strategies for dealing with challenging situations in life. And they're all tormenting because they cause us to suffer. So, not having the right understanding of these torments leads to suffering. But even with the right understanding, we can still not be paying attention. So, another condition for the arising of suffering, of the torments, is unwise attention. And so, if we have right view, and we have wise attention, then we're more likely to see things as they are. Because being afraid, explaining our fear to ourselves, or being aware that fear has arisen in the mind, are three very different situations. Being afraid, explaining your fear, and kind of worrying, thinking about it, justifying it, really, and being aware that fear has arisen, three very different experiences. They all rely on, or they're all dependent on, fear having arisen in the mind. But what you do with it determines whether you suffer or understand. So, as I mentioned the other night, this development of this kind of wisdom uses information about the torments, uses our intelligence, applying that information intelligently, and it involves the practice of awareness that leads to insight and intuitive understanding. When we see in this way, when we see through clear, calm, uh, skillful attitudes of mind, and we see with right view, we stop suffering. 
We start suffering. Okay. How does that happen? Well, remember, Vipassana is about observing our experience with interest, without any agenda to fix it or explain it, just to observe with interest. And to know and to understand, not to get rid of. I mean, we, we do sometimes have this kind of backdoor kind of hope. I hope this goes away. I'll look at this as long as it goes away soon. But actually, that's a contaminated attitude of mind, isn't it? So if we have, if we have no one to know, if we have the understanding that we're observing in order to understand, not to get rid of, not to explain, not to avoid, then, as the Buddha said, those who ask questions become wise. Now, it's not asking questions of others, it's asking questions of ourself. How is it that I'm in suffering now? How is it that I got caught in this state of mind? And when we ask that question of ourselves, and we observe with right view and skillful attitude of mind, we will grow in understanding <laughs> Mark Epstein is one of our colleagues, and he's written several books on uh, the interface of the Dharma and psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. And he's written this. He says, as the Buddhist view has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether any given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. To work something through means to change one's view. If we try instead to just change the emotion of suffering in relation to something, we may achieve some short-term success, but we remain bound by the forces of attachment and aversion that are causing the suffering. Okay, what does that mean in English? In English it means, you know, when we get caught up in an emotional storm, something's going on, I'll use a version again, it's one of my, it's what I know best. <laughs> we get caught up in a version, and we're just kind of frothing, frothing about something. We can practice loving kindness. We can just say, whoa, may you be happy elsewhere, <laughs> may I be happy later, something. We can do loving kindness and we can, we can calm down and we may get that somewhat uh, quick symptomatic relief from the aversion. But the holding in the mind the, of the wrong view that allowed us to use that strategy of aversion or to fall into it is still there. The mind is still holding a wrong view. All we've done is kind of soothe the, the symptom. We haven't addressed the source. And so to work something through means to observe something until you understand it. It's meaning, okay, aversion arises. If you want symptomatic, quick relief, practice loving kindness, or distract yourself with something else, if you want to understand the suffering of aversion, you have to pay attention. Pay attention to aversion. Pay attention to where the mind goes as you observe it. Pay attention to what it feels like. All of the thoughts of revenge and getting back 
and blaming and getting other people to side with you and all the things that the mind does as it tries to protect this sense of self that could hurt. Why do we get averse? Because we get hurt. And until we get in touch with that sense of self that was hurt, that was shamed, that was blamed, that was neglected, that was abused one way or another, and I'm not saying that, that, that anybody is justified in shaming, blaming, abusing anybody. I'm just saying that our sense of self, when it gets shamed, blamed, abused, and hurt, it suffers. And our condition, for many of us, our deeply conditioned reaction is some form of aversion. Well, we can change our behaviors. That's what Sila does, changes our behavior. So you don't speak and act with aversion. And that's what mindfulness does. It kind of puts it aside temporarily. But it's insight that understands the nature of aversion and the sense of self that gets hurt, that responds to or reacts with aversion. So when we use just a replacement as an antidote, yeah, then we get that temporary relief. But when awareness observes the anger and the blaming, the depression, the, you know, all the thoughts of revenge and the guilt and the shame, and just well, there's, there's a whole psychophysical knot of stuff there. Other times when you've been hurt this way, and other uh, other ways that you've tried to deal with it, and all the physical sensations and all the judgments that you have of that and your, of yourself and of the other person, it's all wrapped up there. But if, you, if you're just interested in watching it unravel, you can just watch it. You just watch it unravel, moment by moment. It just kind of peels off. If you're not getting caught in each of those threads that make up this entangled and snarled, you know, knot. So this is the way that we come to wise understanding. We come to free the mind from these wrong views. This is called liberation. This is how we free the mind from the wrong views that cause suffering. So this wisdom develops through awareness. Awareness being, in this case, the practice of the five spiritual faculties having the faith or the confidence or the trust to practice, which gives rise to the energy or the effort to be mindful. And as we're mindful with some continuity, the mind stabilizes in concentration or samadhi. And the mind that is stable sees and not only sees with mindfulness, but understands correctly. This is wisdom. And when we get a little bit of wisdom, we get a glimpse of how things are, a little bit of understanding, we feel a lot more confident. And we take that confidence to generate more energy, more mindfulness, more concentration, more wisdom and understanding, which again supports our confidence. And this is the gradual way that the mind cyclically grows in understanding and liberation. Danny Goldman again, in the Varieties of Spiritual Experiences, he says, the ideal type of personality from a Buddhist perspective, in case you're interested, <laughs> is without greed 
or sense desires without anxiety, resentment, or fear of any sort, or dogmatisms. Not averse to loss, disgrace, pain, or blame, without greed for lust or anger, anger, of course, without experiencing of suffering, no need for approval, pleasure, praise, or desire for anything for oneself beyond the essential and necessary. There is a prevalence of impartiality towards others, an equilibrium at all times with ongoing alertness and calm delight in ordinary as well as boring experience. <laughs> Strong compassion and loving kindness arise spontaneously. <coughs> Perceptions are quick and accurate, and one maintains composure and skill in action with openness to others being responsive to their needs. Okay. I have some room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> but we see the direction. You know, we, we see it. We, we see it. You know, we see it in ourselves, even on a retreat like this. If you practice, you see that the mind becomes more workable, it's more flexible, it's more understanding. Now just extrapolate, you know, the experience of a retreat throughout the rest of your life. This is the direction we're going. So in closing, I'd like to, again, remind us that Sayadaw Tejaniya says, be aware intelligently will help you to deepen your practice, to come to new understandings. Ultimately, it will help you to fulfill the objective of mindfulness meditation, which is Vipassana insights. Being aware intelligently will bring about Vipassana insights.